You are listening to Humble Man, the third in a series of sermons entitled Advent, preached in December of 2008 at Hokesson Baptist Church. And now, Pastor John Boulay. Now that we have a few pictures that are beginning to adorn our walls in this room, I want to take a second to talk a little bit about why we, we're doing this, uh, why we've invited people to, to labor and to bring these, these works of art. This is, in a sense, our Advent wreath for the year. Uh, a few of us sat together a number of months ago talking about Advent and trying to uh, discuss how this month would appear and look. And uh, from the conversation came a desire not just to preach to you about Advent, not just to sing to you about Advent, but to, in as many ways as possible to allow the themes of Advent to show up in our life here at church. And so these paintings are part of that. And, and I'm convicted when I think of the Old Testament accounts of the tabernacle and of the temple. When you read them, you'll begin to notice how desirous the Lord was that his, uh, his house of prayer was ornate with remembrance of him. The walls had memories of him and, and the engravings. And on the Ark of the Covenant, there were cherubim and uh, there, were, there were rams painted on the walls and engraved in the gold. And in the Ark were things like manna and the staff and the commandments. And they weren't for using, they were for remembering. And so these paintings, hopefully, are your ways to remember the themes of Advent from this year. From Matthew 1, which is this first painting on, your, on the left here, or your, the left of your right. Is that how that works? The first one. Uh, we, we selected names in the right upstream in your bulletin. I encourage you to read them. But we have Abraham, David, Josiah, and Christ, which follow the lineage of Matthew 1. And then Mark 1 over there deals with the baptism. And this morning I have, to, to my right, Mary and the child, and that is the subject of our message this morning. So if you'll pray with me, we'll continue in our Advent. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that the spirit of our hearts would be acceptable to you this morning. Father, that you do not need to prepare for worship. Father, you are perfect and wholly ready to receive humble worship, Lord, so prepare us. Make our thoughts and the words and the, and the things we think and the way you transform us acceptable and pleasing in your sight, Lord. Accept the songs we sing in our prayers, this message we give to you, Lord. The service of love that the artists have given, Lord, we lift all this up to you that it might glorify and magnify your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 1. There are extra copies of the Bible in the back. I encourage you to follow along in Scripture. The bulk of the message will, uh, will be in the first chapter of Luke this morning. And it's going to be about the fact that Luke's account of the Advent portrays a humility about the way Christ has arrived and come into the world that is absolutely unique from the other Gospel writers. When we talked about the Advent according to Matthew, there was this picture painted of this long-anticipated arrival of a king. This long-anticipated answer to prophecy. There was this, <coughs> excuse me, this hope for redemption 
And Matthew said, Jesus is it. That's the advent according to Matthew chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 does something different. Mark chapter 1 speaks about sin and the wickedness of our generation as being um, the reason that the arrival is happening, that we should prepare the way by repenting of our sins, and that the person who comes would be this holy, consecrated, fully acceptable Savior in the eyes of the Lord. And that is Mark chapter 1. There's no humility in those accounts. There's, it's, it's glorious, the conversation of Mark. God is speaking down to his son at the baptism. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what the Lord says at baptism. But that's not what we find in Luke. In Luke, it seems that the writer goes out of his way to let us know how humble the arrival of Christ is. This is Luke is, by the way, where we get all of our Advent stories, all your nativities, most of the songs we sing, they come from this account of Luke. And it seems that Luke goes out of his way to show how humble the arrival of Christ was. Or, or maybe we should rephrase it this way. It seems that Luke accurately details how meticulous God was in showing us how humble the arrival of Christ is. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. I think if this birth of the king were like the one that Matthew claims, if, if, if really Christ is what Matthew is claiming, it should surprise us that the audience that Jesus has at his birth is shepherds. If Matthew is really accurate, and 2,000 years of anticipation is sitting in Bethlehem, it should surprise us that the only people that show up at the birth are shepherds. It should surprise us the irony of the prayer. If you, if you have your open to Luke chapter 1, you look for a second with me in Luke chapter 2. This should seem ironic. In fact, this is maybe one of the most ironic parts of all the Bible. I'm looking at Luke chapter 2, verse 8. There's shepherds in, their, in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord appears to them. This is verse 9. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So out in the, in, in the fields, the angel in all the glorious splendor of heaven shows up. And this is what the angel says. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And now listen to this. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Do you know what a manger is? A feeding trough. So the angel, the glory of the Lord shines around the angel. The angel speaks. All of heaven is opened up and the shepherds are terrified. And the angel says, this day born to you is a Savior, Christ the Lord. He's sitting in a feeding trough. That's irony. I think if we had to imagine our own child being born in a stable, uh, it helps the irony, right? That we always imagine the worst possible thing would be that someone have to give their birth to their child in the back of the car on the way to the hospital. That's better than a manger. Other things we know about the birth story, the irony and the humility of the birth story, is that Christ isn't born in Jerusalem or some notable city. If he's the savior of the world, why wasn't he born in the capital of the world, like Rome or Alexandria or Babylon? 
He was born in Bethlehem. Micah writes in Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old of ancient times. And we have every reason to believe that Jesus Christ was poor. He was born into a poor family. We know from other scriptures that Joseph was a carpenter. We know they were from Nazareth, which is on the outskirts. It's barely Jewish. We also know that the, they had to travel to Bethlehem because of the census. And from secular history, secular historians have found out that the way this worked, or the way that times are happening uh, during the time of Christ, was the taxation from the Romans was so extreme that poor Jews had to give up their land because the taxes were attached to the land. So if you were an Ephrathite living in Bethlehem trying to farm your land, oftentimes what would happen is you could no longer farm your land for a profit, and you simply had to leave it and go seek a trade, like carpentry. You had to go travel the land and find a place that needs a carpenter and become a, and become a carpenter. And so what would happen is the revenue, the tax revenue for the Romans would go way down. And you know what they would do? They would hold a census periodically, which would require all of the Jews to go back to the land that they were supposed to be farming and require them to claim their land again and to farm it so that the Roman Empire could get taxation. And that's what's happening here. Caesar Augustus is claiming a census so that people return and generate revenue. And so we have every reason to expect that Christ was born not simply in a feeding trough, and not simply in a small town, and not simply to a poor family, but that humility is a part of his entire life. And then you have this, which is last but certainly not least, that Jesus Christ is born to a young virgin. And I'm not here to suggest that he ought to have been born in some other way. Uh, I mean, he's going to be born from a woman, but the fact that Mary is a, an actual character in Scripture expresses a remarkable, remarkable humility about the way Luke is writing. The fact that Mary has speaking parts, and the fact that she's engaged by the angel, and the fact that the story flows through Mary in a very significant way, esteems Mary in a way that the times would not esteem. There's no natural reason for Luke to write about Mary. Certainly, the social climate would have not permitted him to write about Mary unless the Lord had ordained it. And so that's where we're going to begin to look this morning in Luke 1, this account of Mary. We're going to be asking this question, why is the Lord so set on generating this humble advent through the Gospel of Luke? Because he's done things so different. He's talked about the lineage, and he's generated so much momentum about the king and the lineage. And in Mark, he's generated this great consecrated picture through the baptism. So why? And certainly in the Gospel of John, which we'll talk about next week, there's not a hint of humility. So why would he do it here? Well, let's leave what he has to say about Mary. If you look in Luke chapter 1, verse 39, or excuse me, 26, I'll begin to read. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. 
the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at these words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. Christ enters the world through this woman... And just look at at her attitude throughout this entire conversation, throughout this entire visitation. uh, Mary has this humble attitude about her. The first place it shows up is in verse 29. The angel has just said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And this is what what happens to Mary. It says, She was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. Does that mean Mary's scared? I think Mary is troubled and confused because she is a nobody in Nazareth and Gabriel shows up and says, Blessed are you among women. You are about to receive the great gift of the Almighty Father. And she is troubled, wondering what could this words possibly mean? How could anyone say to me, Blessed are you, Mary? That's her attitude. It's unlike, if, by the way, a little earlier in Luke, and we'll look at it more in a second, the angel Gabriel approaches Zechariah, who is John the Baptist's father, and has an almost identical conversation. Except when the angel shows up with Zechariah, Zechariah trembles with fear. Mary goes, who am I to be called blessed? At the end of this conversation, this promise from the Lord Mary has these words, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answers. May it be to me as you have said, and then the angel leaves. Now imagine that. Certainly in our day and age, maybe we're so far out from Mary that our hindsight is no longer 2020, it's blurred or dulled. Because when we think, or at least when I think, I mean, I'm not a woman, so I can't, uh, sure, it's easy for me to volunteer to give birth. Uh, you know, but nonetheless, when I imagine an angel coming, if, if I were a woman and an angel came to me and said, you have been chosen to give birth to God, I would think, right on. I mean, that, I think there would be a line of women lining up to give birth to Jesus. But I think we, we fail to remember or we're slow to remember the situation that Mary is in. And certainly she needs to, she's mindful of this as the angel is speaking. Essentially what the angel is saying is, is you who are expected and known to be a virgin, who are betrothed to Joseph, are going to become pregnant. What do you think that's going to look like? This blessing is a mixed blessing. It isn't just happy days for Mary. 
The, the Lord comes to her through Gabriel and says, I'm going to give you something, but it comes at a cost. Mary's days are not simple days. They're not blissful days. It's not just this, ah, it isn't birth, uh, you know, baby parties. What do they call that? Showers. I've had four of them for crying out loud. <laughs> it's not a bunch of baby showers. Mary is living, uh, certainly, as soon as it comes out that she's pregnant, Joseph's going to want to get a divorce. She'll never be married again. She's, she's ruined property as far as the Jewish community is concerned. And she'll spend her days with her parents. Those have got to be going through her mind. But she says this, May it be as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. That is the faith in the humility of the gospel story. That's the advent. I want to contrast it for a second with Zechariah. If you look earlier in, in Matthew or Luke 1, like I said a second ago, the angel comes to Zechariah and has a very similar conversation. Zechariah and Elizabeth are husband and wife. Zechariah is a priest in the tribe of Levi. They are in old age and, and Elizabeth is barren, which is a big deal. In Jewish law, if she was barren for that long, it is sanctioned for divorce, the fact that she's barren. So, so you can imagine the angst going in this family for all these years about being barren. You can just imagine what's going on. Well, Zechariah, and, and I, we'll pick up in a second, but I'll summarize. Zechariah happened by lot to have selected the great honor. It was a great honor that only once in your life you could participate in, to be the priest, to go into the holy place on the daily offerings and light the incense so that it would rise to the Holy Father. That's what happens is they make the sacrifice twice a day and then they go behind the holy place and a priest uh, lights the incense and it rises and that's to express that the prayers of the people would rise to the Lord. And in fact, what would happen in the, in the temple is that people would gather at least twice a day, sometimes more, but it's certainly at these times and they would pray during the sacrifice. And when the incense would rise, the temple and all the temple courts and everything around would go completely silent while the prayers rose to the Lord. And that's where Zechariah is on this day. He's in the holy place, his first and only time of his entire life to be there, to burn this incense, and Gabriel shows up, and this is what Gabriel says. Verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been answered. Your wife will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will, will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go out before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of, their righteous, of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is what Zechariah says. How can I be sure of this? Now just put the two in contrast. Over here you have Mary, who can't even figure out why God would speak to her. 
And she says, and then when the, Gabriel gives her the message, it's a message of, I'm giving you the lonely blessing of carrying a child in your womb. And she says, may it be as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. She didn't ask for it. Gabriel came and put it in her lap. Over here you have Zechariah, who for decades upon decades has prayed to the Lord. Why would you not give us a child, Lord? Imagine being a priest, going to the temple every day and desiring a child. How often do you think you would pray to the Lord? He prays day after day after day to the Lord. Finally, it's his one time to be in the holy place. The prayers are rising to the Lord through the incense. Gabriel shows up and says, the Lord has heard your prayers. You're going to have a son. And Zechariah says, how do I know? Give me a sign. That's what the Greek actually means. This how do I know this will be the case is, is, is in the Greek a mood of doubt, is a lack of faith. It's actually saying, give me a sign to let, you, to let me know that this will really happen, which is why Gabriel says this. When the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at the proper time. Everything was right except Zechariah's faith. His, he did not have the humble faith. By the way, the Greek, when, it, when Mary asks, how will this be, is not a, the mood of doubt, but is the mood of like a question. Like, how will this actually happen? I'm a virgin. It isn't, I doubt you, Lord. It's, help me put the pieces together. Which is why Gabriel says, that's a good question. I'll tell you. The Holy Spirit will come over you and will overshadow you and the Most High will impregnate you. And Mary says, may it be as you have said, I am the Lord's servant. For some reason, Luke feels compelled once again to show us the humility of the advent of Christ. No other gospel is talking about this. If Christ is really the lineage, in the lineage of the King David, if he's really the consecrated son of the most and approved son of Jesus Christ, we have to say that either something is desperately wrong with Luke's account or he's trying to tell us something. Because it doesn't make sense. If Jesus Christ is not simply the Savior of the Jews but is the Savior of the world, if he is not simply in the line of David but is the king in the line of David, if he is not simply holy man but is fully God, then either Luke's account is desperately wrong or he's trying to tell us something. I think the answer to this question can be found in looking at the life of Christ. So how does Christ live? Did the ruler of the universe usher his reign through great displays of power and glory? Does he live like a Matthew 1 king? I kind of have to say, well, kind of, sort of. He certainly does signs and miracles. He certainly does great works. But the thing about it is, this is how they sound. When, the Lord, when Jesus is about to do a miracle, this is what usually prefaces it. Leper, be healed. Or cripple, rise. Or woman, stop bleeding. Or we need to feed these people. 
His great glory and his great splendor is displayed through humble acts of service to the least of these. And I would have to ask, if he's so almighty, wouldn't you expect that he would appear before kings and rulers? That he would be in the courts of, of, of the best that mankind had to offer? And I'd say, is that true? And I'd say, well, kind of, sort of. He does end up seeing King Herod. But he has a crown of thorns on his head. And he does come before Pontius Pilate, but he has a purple robe covering a scarred and whipped back. And he is raised up before the people, but he's raised up on a wooden cross with a sign above it that says, King of the Jews. And so we're found dealing with a Matthew 1 Jesus in a Luke 1 world. That he is holy in the line of the kings. And he is wholly approved by God, but he is wholly humble. And I'm convicted that the message that Luke is preaching is that God sent Jesus as a humble man into this humble world of humble circumstances to the humble woman of Mary so that he might save man through humility and faith. That our path to Christ is a path that is paved by humble faith. If Matthew 1 says that the Jews have been crying out for redemption for thousands of years, and if Mark 1 says that the issue is sin, repent, therefore, and prepare the way of the Lord, Luke is saying that it is through humble faith that we find Christ. That is Luke's advent. Now, this may not be good enough for some of you. It certainly is not good enough for the world. In fact, the world totally misses this idea at the manger scene, which is why it's still socially acceptable to talk about baby Jesus, because he's harmless to the world. But the world would say, we refuse to worship anything that is not dressed in splendor greater than ourselves. That's how, that's how the world thinks. Certainly we are familiar enough with it. If you can dress it up to be more resplendent than we are, we'll think about worshiping it. But until then, we will not worship and I'm here to say this morning that Christ is going to answer that question. He has agreed to come again. And when Christ's second advent happens, he will be robed in splendor, riding on a horse, and the glory of the Lord will be with him, and then mankind will be without excuse. If that's what you're waiting for, you will be accommodated. Christ will come again in splendor, but the second time he comes, he is not coming with a message of salvation. He is coming with a message of judgment. The message of salvation is preached through humility and faith. The message of judgment is preached by a glorious Savior. This is the advent of